Thank you, Seth, very much. What a wonderful time of worship. Good to be back with you all again. Let me start off with prayer so that our hearts will be fertile soil for the Lord's word to land upon and, Lord willing, produce a crop. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the ones that you brought here this morning, and I thank you, of course, for your word. Lord, you have a people that you have called out. You've called us out of darkness. You've placed us into your marvelous light. You've taken out the heart of stone. You've given the heart of flesh. Lord, you've given us new desires. Lord, God-given heavenly desires to advance the kingdom here on earth, that the, the king's name may be known. And so, Father, I pray that through this worship service, now that you are helping us, Lord, helping us to be those kingdom people. Lord, as we just sung with our mouths and praised with our hearts, Lord, I pray that the worship would continue as we hear the word preached. I pray, Lord, of course, that you would help me to preach it rightly, faithfully, lovingly, accurately. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would be pleased to unite himself to these words as he takes this truth into the hearts of both sinner and saint. Lord, help us to continue to worship you as we listen rightly and, of course, respond accordingly by the help of your Spirit. And it's in Christ's perfect name that we pray. Amen. Well, we're now in the book of Judges. And we're going to see throughout this book the sad tragedy of the human condition. And that's actually why the book of Judges has value, believe it or not, because it shows us what we can easily become if we follow the, number one, natural inclinations of our hearts, and if we follow, number two, the temptations of the world around us, and number three, if we fall into the deceptions of the wicked one. Sin and compromise fill the pages of the book of Judges. So in keeping with the theme of the book, as we delve into the first two chapters today, uh, I, I want to give you three tips. Three tips for absolute failure. That's what I've titled the message this morning. Hopefully that grips you. Probably never heard a title like that. Three tips for absolute failure. Follow the things that the people of Israel did in the first two chapters of the book of Judges, and you're guaranteed to fail. Of course, I'm saying this tongue-in-cheek, naturally wanting you to do the opposite in order to succeed in your walk with the Lord, but you'll, you'll find a domino effect in these three things that we're going to be talking about today, a, a domino effect in the points that I give you today, each one naturally causing the next. And so avoid the first one so the second one won't happen, and avoid the second one so the third one won't happen, and avoid them all together, and Lord willing, none of them should happen. The book of Judges follows the book of Joshua. If you're wondering where we are in the history of the Bible, Joshua is about to pass away. We actually get his passing away mentioned right at the end of the book of Joshua, but then we also get it again mentioned in chapter 2 of Judges, really just to make a point at that point. But the people of Israel had just been 
encouraged to keep covenant once again at the very end of the book of Joshua. Let's look at that before we go into Judges itself. I want to remind you again, some of you were not here when we went over sort of the flyover of this book a few weeks ago. Joshua 24, verses 14 through 21, is just a little bit of a snippet of what we're going to look at as far as this encouragement to be covenant people once again. But Joshua had just got done reminding them about uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He got done reminding them about Moses and Aaron and what God did through them. He just got done reminding them about Egypt and how God delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand. And he even took them to the time of the 40 years of wandering. He reminded them about when uh, Balaam was hired to curse the people of Israel. And all he could do was bless them. He couldn't even curse them. The Lord would not allow it. He reminded them of the crossing of the Jordan. He reminded them of the fall of Jericho. So he's reminding them of all the great, awesome works of the Lord. And then he says this in Joshua 24, 14 through 21. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods, your, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Then the people answered. Let's see what they say to this great speech and this great encouragement that Joshua has for them. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it's the Lord our God who brought us up and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who did those great signs in in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, watch this. No, we will serve the Lord. All right. That sounds good. Joshua, as we saw, he hinted at, I know you a bit better than you, than you think I know you. He's not so convinced. He's not so convinced. But they reassure him, no, no, we're going to serve the Lord. You know, it's easy to have a, a firm resolve one day. But then when actually walking out in that day and the tasks of life and seeing the temptations around you and feeling the pull of the world around you, it's, uh, it's, it becomes a bit easier to, to compromise on those words that you once stood so resolutely in, doesn't it? Especially if you have no foundation. So the number one failure that I want to talk about as we move into now Judges 1 and Judges 2, is I want to talk about the number one failure, failure to obey God's word. Failure to obey God's word. The people in Judges chapter 1 and 2, what we find is the people of Israel, once they cross into this land and they're taking land through Joshua, 
But we find that after Joshua's gone, they don't finish the task fully. They didn't drive the inhabitants out fully. And this becomes something that will come back and bite them. The people of Israel fail to drive all the people out of the land. Look at Judges 1 now. Since that's the book we're in, the book we're studying, let's go ahead and get into it. Judges 1, I want to start in verse 19. Because this is where we start to see their failure. Judges chapter 1 actually starts out sounding pretty good. Uh, It talks about Judah and Simeon. Now granted, these would be the tribes, not the men though it speaks of them almost as they are men, singular, because it says he did this and he did this, but it's using these people as representatives of the whole. Because the men, Judah and Simeon, had long been dead by the time we get here. These are the tribes. And it starts talking about some of their exploits being pretty good. So they drove these people out, and they drove these people out. But then the tone changes a little bit. And then we just get a flood of disobedience. But this is where the tone changes just a little bit. Look at verse 19 of Judges chapter 1. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Reminds me of the verse that says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. This is why they couldn't drive out men and iron chariots because they had failed to trust in the Lord their God. Let's keep going. And Hebron was given to Caleb in Moses, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the, Jebus- so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Even by the time of the writing of this book, he's saying they're still here. Because he's giving a historical report of things that had already happened, yes. He's not just watching and writing as it happens. He's saying, no, this is, they're still here to this day. They still haven't driven them out. Well, then we just get this flood. This flood of disobedience that happens. It's sort of peppered in right here. But then once we get to verse 27, look at verses 27 through 31. Again, of Judges chapter 1. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth. Sheon and its villages. Then look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Then look at verse 29. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. And then look at verse 30. Zebulon did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Keep, keep going. Verse 31. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. The author is doing this on purpose. The author is showing us all this failure. They didn't do this. They didn't do this. They didn't do this. And it says a few different times they didn't drive them out completely. Did you pick up on that? So what does that mean? Well, they drove some of them out, right? Let me tell you this, church. Partial obedience is no obedience. Partial obedience is no obedience, okay? We sometimes think that if the Lord gives us a command, carrying it out fully is optional. 
especially when carrying it out fully might take a bit of effort or a bit of sacrifice or a bit of discomfort on my part. Surely the Lord will be happy if I just do part of it right. Let me tell you, no. No. Partial obedience is no obedience. Why? Why? It's because God is just this dictator and he's like, I'm angry if you don't just do it all the way. No, it's not that. It's because if you don't drive sin out completely or do whatever he's telling you to do completely, it will come back to bite you, trouble you, cause drama and harm and discomfort and pain. Maybe not even just for you. Maybe for future generations as well. And God forbid that should happen, right? So they were partially obedient to the word of God. And because they were partially obedient to the word of God when it came to the land, that naturally affected their day-to-day obedience while living in the land. How could it not, right? These people who they were supposed to drive out were now walking among them, living in their old customs, How could it not naturally affect them? Which then led to the domino falling and striking the second one, which is failure number two. What's failure number two? Failure to give God's word. They didn't pass the truth down. Let's talk about that. So chapter two shows us the progression here. After we see all this failure in in chapter 1, of course, failure never is just an isolated event. It doesn't just exist in a vacuum, does it? Your failure always affects something. Your disobedience always affects some part of your life. If not now, it will later. There's a proverb that says something to the effect of, this is a paraphrase, but I just read it the other day, and it's popped in my mind, so I, I think I need to say it. It says something to the effect of, be sure of this, the proud will not go unpunished. Now, why would there even be a proverb like that except to encourage those who are frustrated that the proud seem to be flourishing? That proverb gives hope to say, no, be sure of this, the proud will not go unpunished. Why do I bring that up? To say that, you know, Partial obedience or straight-up disobedience can seem to have no immediate negative effects upon our lives, your life. But be sure of this, it can and will should it go unattended to. Should it go unattended to. Now thank the Lord. There's discipline that comes upon our lives. If you're truly a believer, the Lord loves those whom he disciplines. He disciplines those whom he loves. And so there can be discipline that then causes us to repent and change behavior and get in front of those negative effects. So I'm not saying they necessarily always will fall upon you, but they can and they do. Some of the negative effects here with this failure to to drive the people out showed itself in their failure to give God's word. What do I mean? Well, because of their partial obedience, this is what happened. Look at um, 
the progression of things that happens in chapter 2. Let me just read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 to you, just to start off this way. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bakim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Bakim means weepers, like people who are weeping. It got its name because of the great outcry. These people that said, no, we will serve the Lord. Now the angel of the Lord visits them and says, you didn't do what you said you were going to do. And now let me tell you this. The people that you didn't drive out, they're going to stay. I'm not going to drive them out. I'm going to leave them here on purpose so they will be thorns in your flesh. They will irritate you and bother you on purpose. You failed to obey. You were given plenty of warnings. Now you're going to reap what you sow. You made your own bed. Now you're going to sleep in it, is what the angel of the Lord said to them. And the people wept, so much so that they named the place weepers. Must have been great weeping, but it was too little too late, wasn't it? And it was weeping that would not have resulted in any change, apparently, because the Lord knows the hearts of men, just like we sang. So that happens, and then verse 6 through 10 happens. Look at this. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the boundaries of his inhabitants, in Timnath-Heres, and in the country of Ephraim, north of the mountains of Gash. Listen to this. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, Tell us about them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why? Why in the world would another generation come up right after them who had no idea about what the Lord had done and they didn't know the Lord? Why? Well, it was because of failure number two. They failed to give the word of God. They didn't pass down the truth, apparently, They didn't give the truth to this next generation. This next generation, their children and their grandchildren, these people, didn't know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Shame on them for not passing it down or, which we're going to talk about in a moment, for the ones that may have passed it down, because this is a very broad statement, that like no one knew God. We know that God keeps a remnant for himself. And we know from the book of Ruth, which we're going to study after this, that there was, there were a few faithful people 
that still believed during the time of Judges. Ruth is just a beautiful orchid growing up in a swamp. <laughs> there were a few. But broadly, broadly, it was so broad that the author could make blatant statements like this. That no one knew the Lord or the work that he had done. These people had failed to give the truth to the next generation. And let me show you what that generation was like. Look at verses 11 through 15 now as we keep going. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They bowed down to them. They provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. That's just other false gods. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned. You see that? He warned them, and they refused. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. This is what becomes of those who abandon the Lord and who willingly turn from him. Because some of them, I believe, had heard and refused. Now granted, some of them just were not taught and shame on the parents. And this is what happens. Listen to what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, one of two things was true. Either the older generation had failed to instruct their children and grandchildren in the ways of the Lord, or if they had faithfully taught them, then the new generation had refused to submit to God's law and follow God's ways. It's one or the other, but probably a bit of both, probably a bit more heavily leaning toward the older refusing to teach the younger. But listen, children, I want to also tell you because... This next generation that came up not knowing the Lord, I believe some of them had heard from their parents the truth and they refused to listen to it. Children, let this be a warning to you as well. If your parents brought you here today, they love you very much. They have many things they can do today and they choose to bring you to church to hear the word of God faithfully preached with God's help. And you have a choice, each one of you, to follow the Lord or to spurn his ways and go off into sin in the world and follow the devil who wants your destruction more than anything. And so children, let me, let me tell you, this is a sermon for you too. This is a warning for you too. Don't break the heart of the Lord and don't break the heart of your parents. Follow the Lord in his ways because your parents love you very much. And they've brought you here to expose you to the truth. What a blessing that is. Not many children have that these days, unfortunately. You are in a very blessed state. Know that. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So let me say this about failure number two. 
When you abandon truth, you invite trouble. When you abandon truth, you invite trouble. And that's what we see here happening to the people of Israel, don't we? They've abandoned the truth of the word of God. They were warned so many times. None of them could have said, we had no idea. We had no idea this would happen. Should we have accidentally forgotten some of the things God had told us? No, 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 no. They were warned, graciously warned, so often, reminded so many times, and they chose to go after the other gods. They chose to abandon the truth, and when you abandon truth, you invite trouble. But let's back up. Let's back up a little bit. Let's ask ourselves, what led to them failing to pass the truth down to their children? Sometimes the why behind something is more significant than the thing itself because it's what led to it. And so let's, let's talk about the why. Because if we can change the why, then it'll change the outcome of the behavior, right? And so why? Why did they fail? We know they failed to pass it down. The text tells us that they didn't know. So why did they fail to pass it down? Why wouldn't they see passing truth down as important? Because guess what? If we can figure out that, then we can help ourselves too, right? We can help ourselves make sure that, that, that we're diligent to, to keep it and, 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 and want to pass it down. So, so why do they not want to pass it down? Because we always go with our greatest wants. You know that, right? You always go with your greatest wants. I gave you the example long ago when I was held up at gunpoint. I didn't want to give him my wallet before he walked up, but when he walked up and put his gun at me, I wanted to give him my wallet. You always go with your greatest want. So why didn't they want to pass it down? Failure number three is this. Failure number three is this. They had the failure of treasuring God's word. There was the failure to treasure God's word. They didn't fill themselves up. So the progression is this. Failure to obey God's word, they didn't drive the inhabitants out. Failure to give God's word, they didn't pass the truth down. And then failure to treasure God's word, they didn't fill themselves up. What do I mean? Deuteronomy 6. Let's turn there. Deuteronomy 6. I miss the sound of Bible pages turning. I'm almost tempted to not give references on the screen anymore. I missed that sound. Deuteronomy 6, very popular portion of Scripture. Um, Moses is retelling and is almost reinstating the covenant that was made with the people at Mount Sinai. All those people were led through the wilderness toward the promised land, the ones that had come up out of Egypt, However, they doubted severely that God could do what he said. That really tested the Lord and caused him to be extremely angry with them because of all the good he'd done. Why would you doubt me? Part of the punishment was, well, not part, all their punishment was, you're going to wander around in the wilderness then for 40 years until every single one of you that doubted that I could do what I said, you're going to die off in the, in the wilderness. 
And they did. All except just a few of them. Uh, Joshua and Caleb and their families. So they um, survived. But everyone else passed away. However, as they were wandering around, they were multiplying and having children. That second generation is are the people that Moses is now talking to in the book of Deuteronomy. So this is like a second giving of the law, of the covenant, and a reinstating of it upon the people of Israel. So that's where we are in Deuteronomy 6, verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly as the Lord your God The God of your fathers has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. So Moses is being faithful. Look what Moses is doing. He's teaching them. He's giving them truth. And he tells them why. He says, because these are the laws and statutes that the Lord your God wants to give you, that you can keep them, that you may be blessed, that it may go well with you in the land. God wants it to go well with them in the land. And this is how it's going to happen. And then this is where we get that most famous portion of Scripture called the Shema. Israelites have memorized this for years. They say it repetitively. It's very famous. And the Hebrew word Shema means hear. And it gets this title of Shema from the very first word. Hear, Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 6. You hear there, don't you, what Jesus called the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is where he got that from, from the Shema. And then in verse 6 it says, These words that I command you shall be on your heart. Okay, that would be great. How do I get it on my heart? Well, thank the Lord, this is also prescriptive. It tells how we get the law, the law on our heart. It was telling Israel, this is how you're going to get the law on your heart. And this part's very important. Listen to this, verse 6. I mean, 7, rather. This is the very first part of the prescription of how you get the law on your heart. This is the very first part. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. That's the very first part. And that was the failure of the people and judges, wasn't it? They were not doing that. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. These are the prescriptions given to treasuring the law. This is how you're going to treasure God's word. Teach it. Give it. Put it in front of your eyes. Put it on the doorpost of your house. Talk about it everywhere you go. That's what it means when you sit down, when you rise up, when you walk by the way. The word of God is to be so... You're supposed to be so saturated with it that it just flows out of your mouth. People should know you even as the Bible guy or the Bible girl, your, your 
speech should be filled with it because your mind is filled with it. That's how we are renewed in our minds, we're told in the New Testament, having the word of God within us. But isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that the Shema has a part of it teaching the truth diligently to your children? Teaching it diligently to your children, talking about it in your house, when you walk outside, when you lie down, when you rise up, binding it on your hand, frontlets of your eyes. I believe that's just basically saying, get it in front of your face. Of course, you know, um, the very, uh, what do you call them? I forget, but the uh, Jews over in Israel that are very devout and take the Old Testament very seriously still, um, they actually will wrap leather with scripture on it around their hand and they'll wear the box on their forehead that's got a portion of scripture in it and it actually has the Shema in it. So they actually take this very literally Orthodox Jews, that's the word I was looking for, the Orthodox Jews still actually do this physically. I believe it just means put it in front of your eyes. Um, scripture in your house, scripture on your lap as you're uh, eating breakfast, something. I mean, get it in your mind and in your heart, yes? And so this is the prescription. And I think this is why the people failed because they failed to treasure God's word. They were not filling themselves up with it. The truth is, listen to this, you give time to what you treasure. Isn't that true? You give time to what you treasure. The first car I was given when I was 16 was not very much of a car, okay? It ran, it was dog ugly, uh, didn't like it very much. I loved the fact that it got me places, but it didn't have a lot going for it. The next car after that, that I actually saved up money for, I'm gonna tell you, I love that thing. I. I mean, I almost washed the paint off of that thing. I washed it so much and waxed it, and I took armor all, the dash, and all that took care of it. You know why? I treasured it. You know why I treasured it? I actually saved up for that one. I still remember it was green. It was a little Mazda MX-3. They don't, don't buy one. <laughs> They're not that great, and you never see them because they weren't that great. They didn't last. But to me, it was great. And I'm telling you, I spent so much time babying that car because I treasured it. You give time to what you treasure. And as parents, we even teach our children a lot about what we give time to. We teach a lot even without using words sometimes. What we're giving time to in the house, what we're putting our money into, it, sh it shows what, what, what we treasure. What you give your time to will show where your heart truly is. And I believe that the people of Israel were not giving time to teaching the word of God because they'd stopped treasuring the word of God. I believe they weren't talking about it as they sat down and rose up and went by the way because they stopped treasuring it. So they weren't giving time to it in their households to teach it to their children. And so this generation, an entire generation rose up who didn't know the Lord.
So now that I've told you three ways that you can fail, you can fail by not obeying God's word, you can fail by not giving God's word, and you can fail by not treasuring God's word. And by the way, of course, how you treasure it is by doing the things in the Shema. Um, so now I've told you how you can fail at it, thoroughly uh, beat you up a little bit with, with these truths, because guess what? We all look at Israel acting this way, and we can all relate to their behavior, your, your pastor included. So what hope do we have? Well, instead of me just saying, so therefore, don't fail. <laughs> Obey and teach it to your kids and treasure it. Let's pray, amen, and let's be done. Well, okay, that would be true, just to say, do better. How do I do better? That's what I want to know. How do I do better? Because I already know I need to do better at these things. I want to obey it more, don't you? I want to do better at being a dad. Those of you who are parents, don't you? And I want to treasure it more. You're a Christian in here, don't you? I want to spend more time in it. I want to devote more time to it. How do I do that? By looking to the one person who I haven't even mentioned in this sermon yet, who's Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus Christ in each of these failures I've talked about and look at his winning in each of them. Think about Christ perfectly obeying God's word, never partially, like the people of Israel. He perfectly kept the law on our behalf so that when he dies upon the cross in my place and I put my faith and trust in what he did alone, not in my works at all, then guess what? The righteousness that he obtained from being a perfect law keeper goes on to my account. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Secondly, Christ perfectly embodied God's word. Remember I said the failure number two was they failed to give God's word? Well, Christ perfectly embodied it. And what I mean by embodying it, when did he not give the truth? He was the truth, is the truth. He calls himself the truth. Everywhere he went, every word he spoke was scripture. Anytime he spoke, he was giving truth because all his words are scripture. Oh, don't you long to have even more scripture in heaven, to hear all the words that he did speak while he was here on earth and to hear the words that he speaks to your face in heaven. I long for that day, don't you? So he perfectly embodied the word because he was the word. He perfectly embodied the truth because he was the truth. Everywhere he went, everything he did was truth giving. And then lastly, Israel failed to treasure God's word. Christ perfectly treasured God's word. Oh, the Lord Jesus loved the will of his father. He even asked once, being a man as he was, father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He treasured the Father's word so much so that he said, I'll do whatever you want, Father. Anything. Anything you ask of me, I'll do it. 
That's how much I treasure your word. So we look to Jesus as the one that we put our faith and trust in and our failings in because he's perfect. He did all of this perfectly. Everywhere Israel failed, he fulfilled. He did it all perfectly. And so we look to him. And so Christian, yes, we find ourselves lacking too, don't we? But we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He started you off in this race. Guess what? He's going to get you to the end. And he's going to get you to the end. You fall and you get up and you fall and you get up. But, but, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's how we win. That's how we don't become like these people. However, we do learn from their shortcomings, don't we? Yes, we do. So... Three tips for absolute failure, I gave them to you. And then I also gave you the picture of the one who perfectly fulfilled them all. We follow his example, and we put our faith in him to fulfill them as well. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. I pray that you would help us in our own failures. And we thank you that Jesus perfectly fulfilled everything on our behalf. Lord, I pray, of course, that you would please help us, help us to fully obey your word, help us to fully give your word, and help us to fully treasure your word through Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.